What is the scariest thing facing business owners and executives today? Well, it's not COVID. It is you being attacked by someone who's looking to steal your data, but more importantly, the data of your customers. Today, we're going to talk to someone who handles these issues from a legal perspective, and we're going to explain exactly why you need to be concerned about this right now, some of the things you can do to prepare yourself to get ready or possibly prevent these attacks, but more importantly, perhaps most importantly, what you should do if something like this happens to you. Join me for this episode of The Inside BS Show. All right, today our guest is Dan Cotter, and he's an attorney in the Chicago area, and he focuses on cybersecurity issues as well as insurance issues, and he helps people with mergers and acquisitions. Dan, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the show today. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be on here. All right, so let's talk first and foremost about what people should be most concerned about when it comes to cyber. Give us the Give us the biggest things that you're seeing, like people that you work with. What is the what is the big concern about cybersecurity these days from a legal perspective? Yeah, it's a, it's really if you watch the news, if you do anything, you're seeing that the hackers are getting much more sophisticated. It used to be that they would go after small businesses, ask for small ransom, and be done. Uh, recently, uh, we had a situation where uh, an elderly person came uh, to our firm looking for help. Uh, they had some cryptocurrency and someone had called them and said that they had been hacked, went through and got their credentials and ended up taking uh, their cryptocurrency uh, from their system. And so one of the things that's happening is, is whether you're an individual, a small business, a big business, is that the hackers 24-7 are trying to find vulnerabilities, still trying to find phishing scams, the emails that come in, uh, the spoofing that looks like it's an executive or somebody you know closely saying, hey, Dan, uh, I'm out on the road today, but I need to immediately transfer and pay this invoice. And it's an invoice that looks legit. It looks like it's from the CFO of the company. And so people need to be, be alert. Uh, one of the things that a lot of banks and uh, finance companies and other uh, people will tell you is that they'll never call you for your credentials. And so if you get those calls, even as an individual or small business, be very leery and, and make sure you take steps, I think, to verify that who it is is actually who it is. Yeah, you know, and we can, I, I want to talk about exactly what that verification process would look like. I, I'll tell you a story that happened to me. This is, this is how scary it could be. So my power bill for my office, I have a, I get a separate bill for my office than I do for my home, even though my home is in my office, I have it separated out for expense purposes. And I think it was, it was probably a couple of days past due, not, not more than that. And the power company here in Florida, it's Florida Power and Light, they send an email and they say, your, your, your bill is past due, please take care of it right now. And I thought to myself, all right, so I, I saved it, and I, and I thought at the end of the day, I'll, I'll pay this with my credit card or whatever. I should have had it set up on auto pay, different story. Um, but I said, I'll pay this at the end of the day. Well, I'm working, and my phone rings. And it's a guy, and he says, we're, uh, we're 90 minutes away from shutting off your power. Uh, I need you to send the money in right now. And I, I panicked, and I'm thinking to myself, it's... It's a little odd, like the, the bill was due like say the 20th and this is like the 22nd. 
And I'm like, it's a little odd that they'd be this aggressive. It's like two days. I mean, I've gone, you know, I've gone longer than that. I remember in college, I think we went like four weeks one time without paying the power bill and they didn't shut it off. So I said, all right, all right, hold on one second. Let me get out my, let me get out my debit card for my business and I'll, I'll take care of it right away. And then I'm thinking to myself, what, this really doesn't make sense. And I said, you know what? Uh, I, I got to go upstairs and get my wallet. Let me call you back. Give me your number and I'll call you back. And he says, no, 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 I'll hold. We got to take care of this right now. And then I really got suspicious and I was like, okay, so that something's going on here. I said, no, 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 I have to call you back. So he gives me a phone number. I wait a few minutes. I call that number back and it's the number to the local police station. So it is, and you know, it was like, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so you know, this guy is, it's a total scam. And then 15 minutes later, he called me back and I said, I, I don't know if you think I'm a fool or whatever. I said, but I just went online and paid my bill for real. And the number you gave me was a number to a local police station. He's like, oh, because the police are going to come and arrest you because you haven't paid your bill. And I'm like, okay, thanks <laughs> a lot. Have a good day. But, you know, I, I'm I'm a relatively lucid individual, and I almost fell for this, right? So I can see where people sending invoices that look legitimate, you know, folks can actually get fooled. Is that, Dan, is that the biggest way that these people um, get into other people's systems is that through, and that that's, a, I guess that's a phishing attack, right? Through, uh, right. you know, like some sort of a, you know, spoofed website or email address, and then they, they you click on the link and you they get access to your system. Is that how they get in? That, that's very common. And so you'll see a lot of employers now, including my law firm, you know, we go through exercises to kind of test our population, like you said. Uh, we're all lucid. We're all very smart, but we're also in a rush. And what they what, what these uh, hackers do is they try to get into that kind of speed, like you're talking about. You, you, it makes sense, right? Like they somehow have the information that you haven't paid your bill yet. They're very savvy. They sound legit. They look legit. Um, and a lot of times, what happens is people like that crypto uh, thing I mentioned. They think, well something must be wrong, right? Because somebody's contacted me and it's, it's a problem. And so, you know, one of the things you're starting to see more and more, I think that's uh, somewhat protective is this two uh, multi-factor authentication is coming in more and more. Almost every bank account now, your utilities, almost anything now will send you a text to your phone or something. And it's designed to protect. I remember when that was first coming out, uh, one of my colleagues at a former law firm was complaining about what a pain in the rump it was to have to get your, your phone out and do things. And I said, you know, the reality here is it's trying to protect you because these hackers are very good. And again, it, it looks legit. I've, I've given webinars and sessions and training and talked to clients where you show them, it looks like HSBC Bank or it looks like Chase or it looks like Microsoft, it looks legit. It says, hey, there's a problem with your account, get on immediately like you're talking about, pay this. And you, you just think, okay, you, you hit the link and when you, once you hit that link, that's what really triggers it a lot of times. So that's one of the, the, the things that hackers are doing. The other thing they're doing is they're doing these attacks where they're just going in, uh, they get credentials like through these things, right? And, and then they get access. And then what they do is they uh, lock your, your data and that's the ransomware attacks that are coming in. And, and we're seeing big uh, payments by like the, even CNA Financial paid $60 million last year to unlock their data. Um, and again, it used to be much smaller. These uh, uh, hackers would go for like 20,000, uh, one Bitcoin or something. Now they're, they're really extorting for huge numbers. 
and it's very hard to detect. And the FBI and other uh, international agencies are trying to track this down, but um, it's a real threat to all of us. So, Dan, a lot of people probably are out there thinking, hey, listen, they're on, they're after you know, big companies, they're after IBM, they're after uh, GE, they're, they're not after my small company. Dispel that myth for us. They're after anybody they can get money from. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the bigger the, the fish, uh, these financial institutions and stuff, they not only can get the data of those financial institutions, but the customers. But yeah, they're looking for small companies too. And the reason for that is it, it's easy, right? Uh, back in the day, uh, Willie Horton was asked why he robbed banks, and he said that's where the money's at. And with big small businesses and law firms are, are especially vulnerable in the real estate transactions, the way that cash and escrows are done. But every small business is vulnerable, and the reason for that is it's an easy score, right? You can accumulate a lot of easy scores with small businesses. The GEs that you're talking about, the, the Deutsche Banks, the, the uh, Chase, they, they have a thousand or more IT staff. They have uh, penetration testing going on constantly. They have all kinds of firewalls. The smaller businesses oftentimes just are using, might be using uh, Gmail suites, they might be using Outlook, but they're not really thinking about this overly protective uh, mechanisms in place. And so it's easy for a hacker to get in uh, these small businesses because the training's not there, the sophistication's not there, and the, and the uh, hurdles to get over are pretty minimal. Dan, talk about liability because the thing that scares the hell out of me, and I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't keep any credit card. Is credit card people's credit cards getting stolen? I don't keep any credit card information on my clients anymore. Any client that pays me with a credit card, we use a secure link. They enter the information; it's immediately encrypted. I never see it. It doesn't live on my systems. I don't have a server with that information. But there are a lot of people out there that capture client credit card information and and they use it themselves. Talk about why that's such a big, big problem from a liability perspective. Sure. Um, it's a liability problem because those credit cards, you can shut them down and if you can show that you've taken steps and, and been protective, uh, you're not charged. Uh, but a lot of times what happens, as you know, Dave, is that uh, people also use debit cards, and the debit cards don't have the same protections that credit cards do. Um, and again, uh, the nice thing about uh, w when credit cards are stolen and things is, is you get those notices oftentimes. Uh, m most banks and financial institutions are pretty good about, hey, Dan, you, you did you authorize a spend in, you know, in, in Ireland? So my, my youngest son's in Ireland right now, and so he's got a credit card attached to mine. And so I get those sometimes, did you authorize a spend? Uh, but, but in the meantime, if someone gets a credit card and it's you know, got a nice limit on it, they can go to town and, and buy a lot of things. And uh, oftentimes they'll sell those on the, on the dark web, uh, credit card information for a small amount. And it might take some time before you get notified. Um, and so, like I said, there's limits on the credit cards and your exposure, but the, the real issue for you is that your identity can be stolen. Once they have your credit cards, they can get other information and uh, your credit reports can start being impacted in your credit score. And although you can clean it up, it's a lot of work and energy for those that get uh, hacked like that and attacked. It can take hours and hours to sort out uh, through credit reporting and through your various cards, uh, getting that cleaned up for you. And then you're vulnerable to lawsuits, right? If you're, if you're collecting right. data from your customers and that data gets stolen, 
you, the person who collected the data, you have vulnerability to a lawsuit, right? Right. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things we're seeing more and more is, uh, you know, some of my clients are in the IT service providing business. Uh, others are consumers. Uh, we spend a lot of time anymore on data security and privacy and the provisions. And like you're talking about the exposure, who's going to be responsible if, if I'm holding your data and it gets attacked, who's responsible for that? Um, and, you know, many companies, many small and, and bigger companies still don't have cyber insurance. It, the market's getting harder for that. And so, uh, yeah, you can have big exposure and big liabilities. If your uh, data, your collector of data, like you said, you don't collect credit cards anymore, but a lot of small businesses still, they don't have that, that kind of off-putting of those tasks. And it, it's a real risk because they... Uh, might get get hacked and, and can subject thousands of their customers to uh, vulnerabilities, right? That uh, they're going to have to indemnify under contracts or just uh, under, you know, the way the law works. So I want to I want to ask you a couple of questions about things we need to have in our agreements with our customers that will that will help offset some of this liability. Before we get to that. I need to let folks know that today's show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For years, for 35 years, uh, actually more than 35 years, since 1983, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors has provided expert client service to businesses that are either privately held or families of wealth all over the United States. They have offices in Metro Detroit as well as Chicago, but they work everywhere in the U.S. And they have expertise in tax planning, consulting, family office advisory, uh, dispute handling, business valuation, litigation support, forensic accounting, and risk management. My favorite practice area that Sandrowski helps folks with is, of course, family office advisory. And these are families of wealth, people who are affluent, who've developed separate business entities to handle the management of their money, as well as the companies that they buy, the investments that they make. If you know someone who works with an affluent individual or a family of wealth, you got to reach out to Sandrowski Corporate Advisors because they literally wrote the book on family office planning and how to set up a family office and how to take advantage of some of the tax laws that exist to help family offices in the short term and in the long term. Things are changing. The tax law is constantly evolving and there's never been a better time to have Sandrowski Corporate Advisors come in and look at the structuring of your company, whether you're in business or whether you advise or work with families of wealth. This is the time to have Sandrowski Corporate Advisors come in, look at your tax exposure, and see what they can do to help you reduce the amount of tax risk you have in your business or your family has if you're a family of affluence. You can reach out to Sandrowski Corporate Advisors by calling 866 866- 717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. For over 35 years, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors has been doing this. They can help you reach out to them today. We're also brought to you by my Revenue Roadmap Guide. That's right. The Revenue Roadmap Guide I use in my business and the Revenue Roadmap Guide I use to help my clients. This is a marketing plan you can use to increase the amount of revenue that comes into your professional service firm. And I want to give it to you for free for being a valuable and loyal listener to the Inside BS Show. I'm offering you this limited opportunity to get your Revenue Roadmap Guide. Here's what you need to do. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info there. You can download a customizable 
business development plan for your law firm, regardless of whether you have one person, you're, you're a sole practitioner, or you have 150, 300, 500, 1,000 people, you can use this Revenue Roadmap Guide as a business development plan, and I'm giving it to you for free because I really appreciate you joining us here today on the Inside BS Show. Take advantage of this before it disappears, revenueroadmapguide.com. All right, Dan, so we're talking about cybersecurity and we're talking about how you can protect yourself from liability. What should we have in our engagement agreements? What should we have in our client service agreements from a, from a language perspective in order to help offset some of the liability if we collect client data and client information? I think first and foremost, we should be very clear about what data we're collecting and, and what we're using. And, and if we're not uh, collecting or storing data, we should make that very clear. And then uh, we, we should have in place an internal policies and procedures that address how we collect, store data, uh, how we're using password uh, protections, and we should have an incident response plan in place so that if the, if the inevitable occurs, it's not a matter of if but when, uh, that somebody's been hacked, uh, we can take steps that are meaningful, logical, reasonable, and not trying to do it by the seat of our pants when something happens. Um, and then, of course, the battle always is, is how much cyber insurance each party has. Um, cyber insurance, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is becoming more and more difficult to obtain. The market's starting to, to get very hard for it because the insurers that have been writing it for some time, it's, it's uh, with, with these huge ransomware attacks, with these phishing attacks, with all the things we've talked about, it's really becoming more and more of an exposure for insurance companies. And so they're really underwriting more and more. They want to see they have multi-factor authentication, that you have an incident response plan, that you have these good policies and procedures in place to be able to attack and protect your data that you're collecting and using. Okay, so we do, let's say we do all of that. Does it make sense on an annualized basis to have somebody come in and look at our systems and test our systems? And shouldn't we, here's, so let me, let me, let me, let me phrase it a different way. I have my clients call their lawyer. So I would have my clients call you and then I would have you engage a company to test the systems. And the reason that I do that is because if you hire the company to test the systems, everything's under the umbrella of confidentiality. So if we have an event down the road, that those people cannot be deposed because you hired them as the lawyer. Does that make sense? Does that track? It does, and that's often the case. I've been retained as a coach in some of those incidents where uh, there's a forensic team that's looking at the alleged attack, and you're absolutely right. It's under the attorney-client privilege because we're giving advice and counsel and advising them on how to respond, um, and so that is the, the way to do it. Um, and and it, like you said, it's under the umbrella of attorney-client privilege, uh, so long as we're given legal advice, which is what we're given in those situations. We're looking at the situation, the assessment, and working with the forensic team to kind of understand what, what took place and how we respond, whether it's to government agencies or notices to customers if it's required or whatever the steps are. And so that is uh, an appropriate way to approach it. You know, and that's, that's good advice to everyone who's listening or watching. I mean, you're really getting your money's worth just in that piece of advice alone. Any type of investigation, something happens and there's exposure for you in your business, right? A client, uh, your one of your employees is stealing, 
and the clients are affected by the theft. Don't go willy-nilly starting your own investigation. Hire a lawyer first and have the lawyer hire the investigators or have the lawyer lead the investigation because then everybody that works with the lawyer is covered under that umbrella of privilege. The worst thing that can happen is you hire an outside investigator, they investigate for a year and uncover all this stuff and then somebody finds out about it, they sue you, they subpoena the investigator, and he's deposed and he has to tell the truth under penalty of perjury. So you never want that. You wanna hire the lawyer first. Don't be cheap, go get the lawyer, and then let the lawyer hire the investigative team. Now, Dan, and that that is specifically that's specifically applicable to annual audits, whether it's you know like employee theft audits or a cybersecurity audit. You want the lawyer to bring the people in, right? I really want to stress that. So confirm that for me. That that's correct. Any internal investigation, uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, these situations are fluid, whether it's employee theft or it's it's a cyber uh, situation. Uh, you want to be able to you know, investigate without fear that, as Dave said, that step-by-step step that you have to reveal or disclose things. Um, and again, it, it's part of that process of, of really being able to assess and give legal advice under, under that umbrella that says, yeah, this is what's happening. We need to do further investigation, talk to the, you know, the forensics teams or whoever actually does the testing. So, because as a lawyer, we don't actually do the, the, the testing itself. We don't have the, the uh, engineering and those skill sets, but we are involved in understanding what's being uh, gathered, the evidence, and, and as Dave said, uh, start with the lawyer and then build that team from there. And look at your cyber policy if you do have one, because sometimes it'll dictate you know, which resources you use or what law firm, but in other cases, you have the discretion to call someone like me. Now, Dan, you have you have expertise in insurance law, too, and there's an overlap here with cyber and insurance. So let's talk about what happens when there's an event that's covered by insurance. Who does so when the insurance company engages a law firm, who does that lawyer represent? The lawyer represents the insured. So under those relationships and it uh, can be very complex, people are. There's a lot of literature and a lot of cases that, that, that go through that kind of process. Uh, but when an insurance company uh, is contacted by the insured and the lawyer is authorized, the lawyer uh, is representing the insured. And, and so uh, it's very clear. And if there's a conflict in those cases and some insurance disputes there is where it seems like the lawyer may be adverse because they're retained by the insurance company to represent the insured, then there's all kinds of uh, conflict uh, uh, arrangements. It varies by state, uh, but but you as an insured, you're entitled to a lawyer that's dedicated and loyal to your needs and issues, and so that's who is represented by the law firm. Now, in what under what uh, under what scenarios does it make sense for an executive of a company to retain? their own personal counsel. So let's say I'm on the board of directors of XYZ company and there's an event and the company calls their insurance and the insurance says, okay, we're going to hire um, Jones, Jackson, and Jackson to represent the company, okay? But you were, you were in board meetings and you voted on stuff that may have, uh, that may have been somehow contributory to the liability 
Under what circumstances should a business owner or a board member or someone in the leadership of the business, under what circumstances should they retain their own counsel? And these events come up often, and I spend a lot of time in houses uh, in the Office of General Counsel. You have to make it very clear that you represent the corporation. And so in that scenario that you're talking about where a board member or management may be potentially adverse to you know the interest of the of the company for whatever reason they, they voted on something like you said they, they had a conflict uh, when those potential conflicts come up where the where the company's uh, interest and and the executive or board members interests kind of are diverse or potentially going to be adverse that's when they would go and get their own counsel and under their directors and officers insurance there may be situations where they can retain their own counsel Again, it's going to depend on those policies, but there are often those situations because, you know, a, a CEO may have uh, taken an action or advised the board on something that uh, at the end of the day can reward him with, with compensation, right, in, in, in his package, uh, on, on his options or other things, um, and then somebody sues, a shareholder sues or something, and so there's, there's potential conflict between the company and that executive. They would want to get their own counsel to advise them on their rights and make sure that their interests are protected while the, while the company's interests are also being addressed. So if you're, if you're accepting a, a board appointment, you, everybody gets excited, right? Oh, they want me on the board, right? One of the first things you need to look at, in my opinion, and I, I'm interested in hearing what, what you think about this, Dan, is what the, what the DNO policy is, what the directors and officers policy is to make sure you're covered because you don't, you you know, when you get a board appointment, you don't you don't know what these people are going to decide in the future. And although we like to believe that only smart and uh, you know people of goodwill who take their fiduciary responsibility seriously are going to be appointed to a board, I've seen knuckleheads get board appointments. <laughs> so what do we need to do? Uh, there are there are a lot of people out there who are either being appointed to boards of nonprofits or are, you know, as their careers progress, they're being appointed to boards of privately held companies. And some folks may be listening who be on boards of publicly held companies. What should they look into before they accept those positions? Uh, very good question. And uh, a couple things. They should do their homework and due diligence, like you said. They should be asking for uh, minutes and reports of the meetings that precede when they join the board. They should be asking about their insurance uh, policies and programs. That's important, whether it's cyber or, or directors and officers insurance. And I see this especially in the nonprofit arena. You mentioned that uh, many nonprofits, when they start up, and even even the sophisticated ones that have been around for a long time, they have very limited budgets, and so they don't think about directors and officers insurance or a regular insurance program. And while on nonprofits, your liability is pretty limited to personal liability, you still want to make sure that the, the company has insurance programs in place. Um, because if you don't, to your, to your point, there are knuckleheads, there are people that uh, get sideways with, with what is best for the company or for the nonprofit. And you don't want to be sitting there uninsured. Um, and so the minutes, their insurance program, and also uh, look for their bylaws or operating agreement if they're an LLC to again see about indemnification and what that looks like under the board's uh, powers. Even if you're joining the board of your condominium association or your co-op, 
you got to make sure they have directors and officers, especially in that scenario. You got to make sure they have directors and officers, liability insurance. And here's the thing. The most important provision in there is that they're going to cover your legal costs because even if you make the right decisions and you're a person of goodwill, if you get sued, legal expenses can be tens of thousands or, God forbid, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you get somebody who has unlimited resources or somebody who's an attorney themselves who decides they're going to sue the board, there's no cost to them. But there's a huge expense to you because you have to defend yourself and you have to bring in an attorney. So always make sure there's directors and officers liability insurance for any board you join or any executive position that you take. All right, Dan, tell us about you and your business. First of all, how did you get started um, doing this? And I noticed, am I am I right that you're also a CPA that you that you passed the CPA exam too? Like, what what is wrong with you? You need to have licenses in 15 different places. So you're an attorney. You went to school for that, and then you became a CPA too. I, I well, I, I'm not a CPA. I successfully completed the CPA exam. Is all I can say. The rules keep, kept changing on that, and so I've I've never kept up. I never worked in public accounting. I worked for five and a half years at, at CNA Financial. Went to law school at night the last three of those uh, years. Uh, to law school, I had a postgraduate scholarship, and so decided instead of getting an MBA, I was going to do the craziness of, of going to law school. I wanted to audit classes, and and that did not work out. So. Um, my, my path, and, and if you look at my resume, I've been a bit of a, I've gone in-house and, and, and in private practice. So when I graduated law school, I went for two years to a, to a large law firm. I was a litigator. Then was invited back to CNA Financial in a non-litigation role. That's where I started privacy and insurance and regulatory uh, back in 1996 at CNA. I was their Y2K general counsel, their e-commerce uh, first general uh, counsel, and their private first privacy officer. I spent 13 and a half years in-house at insurance companies. Then in 2010, I went into private practice for three years, uh, did, a, did a bunch of stuff, including outside general counsel. Then went into a, a life insurance company for two and a half years in 2013 uh, to try to take them public. They, they got public uh, a few years after I left. And for six and a half years, now I've been back in private practice, the last two and a half at Howard & Howard uh, Attorneys PLLC. And so it's been kind of a meandering road. The one thing I tell young attorneys and folks is that I would not do it the way I did it. This is my third time in private practice just because you build up a book of business and then when you go back in house, you give it away. And so I've had conversations with some of my friends and colleagues and peers and folks that I know for many years talking about, hey, one of my clients has offered me the general counsel position. Should I take it? I, and I talked to them about that. What's your book look like? What, what happens if you're unhappy with that move? Uh, you come back out a year and a half or two years later, your book's gone, right? It's gone to your partners. It's gone to other firms. So you're starting from zero. And depending on your age and things, that can be a daunting task to try to build from zero to six figures or seven figures. Yeah. And of course, I kid. I mean, your background is so impressive. I mean, it's it's hard enough just to, pa to get out of law school and pass the bar exam, but to take the CPA exam too. Kudos to you. And I think the advice you've given to attorneys, and, and we, we do have a lot of attorneys that, that watch and, and listen to the show, the advice that you've given is fantastic. So my, you know, my two cents on that, if you're going to go in-house, you need to be in-house for a decade or more because 
uh, that to do that for a short stint, I mean, you, it, the hardest thing for an attorney to do is do the work and build up that book of business. So if you're going to allow your firm to take over your book of business, because people, you know, they hire uh, attorneys, they, you know, they may come to the attorney because of the reputation of the law firm, but it's the relationship with the attorney that keeps that, you know, business growing and growing and growing. If you're going to pass that off to somebody else, and that's what you do when you go in-house, you're going to be, be in-house for 10 years or more. Um, and it has to be a great opportunity. Now, that being said, sometimes you'll have friends who go into politics and they're going to appoint you uh, attorney general of a state or you're going to get into government work, which is going to give you even more of a nuanced area of expertise. And that will benefit your ability to attract clients down the road, but you have to weigh what's going to be the consequences of, of those decisions. So that's an excellent point. Dan, how do you get most of your clients these days? I mean, you and I met because we're part of a, of a group of professionals that, that networks on a regular basis. How do, how do clients find you? How do you get your clients generally? Most of it's from, you know, spending all those years in-house on the insurance side, that, that part of my practice. It's either someone that I worked with before or I'm on the opposite side of a deal and then get those clients. And then it's it's mostly through the reputation of having developed strong relationships with a lot of my clients as they move around or as they uh, encounter their friends that need legal services, they direct them to me. And so it's really by networking and business development in that arena. Um, I always uh, tell, again, young lawyers uh, and colleagues, you know, the best uh, compliment and the best way that you can get more work is by doing great work for the clients that you have because then they you know promote you in these groups they promote you when when their friends say hey I need a lawyer to do this or that and that's really how I get most of my clients okay so tell us now who the ideal client is for you because uh, a lot of our a lot of our colleagues improvisers will listen to this will watch this who's the perfect client for Dan Cotter right now you know, it's a small to mid-sized business that has legal needs, uh, and they may not know it. Uh, in some cases, we've done a, a kind of an a la carte uh, ability to use us at a discounted rate for a certain amount of hours. Um, as mentioned, you know, 2022 for me, I really want to focus more and more on the privacy and cyber piece of my business, including cyber insurance and advising clients on that. Um, and that affects everybody. So especially as we talked about earlier in the show, uh, the small clients, the mid-sized businesses that may not be as sophisticated as the GEs or the Chase, JP Morgan Chases of the world that have needs. Uh, they might be going to get cyber insurance and the cyber insurance underwriter saying, hey, you need this or that. Uh, th those are the types of clients that have been doing those policies and procedures, both in-house and outside, as mentioned, for 26 years. And that's really where I want to be focusing a big part of my practice this year. Okay, super. So if people want to reach out to you uh, either for uh, to retain you because they, they have an issue or they want to connect with you and uh, get some legal advice from you or they have a referral they want to send you, what's the best way for people to send business or connect with you to get some advice or send you a referral? What's the best way for people to do that? The best way is to send an email to me um, and people that know me and my clients and my friends will tell you that I'm very responsive and most about 17 hours a day I'll respond to emails if I get them, maybe a little more or less. I've been trying to sleep more, but my email is dac 
at h2law.com, uh, or they can call me if they want. Uh, but that's the easiest way probably is just uh, I, I monitor my emails probably more than I uh, have my phone uh, with me at nighttime. Okay, that's D-A-C, Delta Alpha Charlie, at H, the number two, and then L-A-W.com. We're going to put all that in the show notes for you. And then the website for Dan's firm is howardandhoward.com. The name Howard and the word and spelled out, so howardandhoward.com. You can find Dan's profile on there. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes as well. Dan, thanks for uh, taking the time to really educate us today on cyber issues. If you had one piece of advice, I'm going to ask you for two things right now. One piece of advice for a business owner uh, related to the things that we talked about today. And then give us that one piece of advice for the young lawyer, because you spoke to young lawyers earlier. So what are those two pieces of advice that we should take away? For the, for the business owner, uh, make sure you require education and training for your uh, all your employees and staff and uh, test them to see that they're paying attention. Uh, use some mock things and, and there are outside agencies that will do that, so they can set up emails that look real just to test. So that's, that would be the piece for small business owners. That's the best way to see what your sophistication level is of your entire workforce because every employee is a potential vulnerability and hack opportunity. Uh, for young lawyers, what I always tell young lawyers, uh, mentees and friends and, and others, is to imagine you have a quiver on your back and put as many arrows as you can, get as many opportunities as you can uh, I mentioned going back to CNA Financial back in the late 90s. There were 75 other attorneys, but one of the things that I was always ready and willing and able to do was to take on dirty jobs and things people did not want to do. And that those things that I learned in 1996, 25 years later, I'm still being able to use those and take out those arrows out of my quiver and apply those to my clients' needs. And so that's the recommendation for young lawyers. Be broad in your opportunities and try to get as great of a mix of business and types of issues as you can. Well, that's outstanding advice. Do the jobs nobody else wants to do. I've made an entire career out of doing stuff nobody wants to do. And the reason is because nobody wants to do it. It immediately gives you a higher profile in the eyes of the executives in the company, the eyes of the boss. And if you do it really well, you turn it into something that can be rewarding for you both uh, from a career standpoint and from a reputational standpoint and you can really make a make a huge uh, dent in building a brand that is resonant with people great advice i really appreciate it dan thanks for joining us today uh this is an incredibly valuable episode for business owners as well as for young professionals so i appreciate you being here well, thank you, Dave. My pleasure. All right, folks, that'll do it for another episode of the Inside BS Show. Be sure and check out our friends at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. If you need help in your business reducing your tax exposure or with valuations, or if you have a particularly thorny transaction you want to do your homework, you want to do your due diligence on that transaction, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors are the folks to call. Reach out to them today, 866-717-1607. Also, check out my Revenue Roadmap Guide. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info there and download your free business development guide. It's great for all professionals. We're here every day taking you inside business strategy, sharing the insider business secrets with you. Until tomorrow, I'm Dave Lorenzo, and here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.